Welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today is September 19th, 2021. We continue our new series titled Romans, Gospel for All Time. Today's sermon, Why the Wrath of God, will be taught to us by Pastor Bob Wade out of Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 23. But first, here's a quick recap of last week's sermon. I don't want to keep having these opportunities in my life where an opportunity comes up for me to share the gospel. And then I start to, but it's met with some resistance, so I backpedal and say, ah, I don't know, not sure what I'm gonna say next. I didn't prepare for that question. I didn't have a great week, and they know it. I'm not the best example right now. I thought our relationship was going in the right direction, but now they're not responding. Well, I don't want this relationship to end. So I treat the gospel and, and the presentation of it like it has something to do with me. Like if I don't say it right, if I don't do it right, if I'm not living right, then it has no power. But that's just not the case. Gospel doesn't need my help. Friends, let's just be unashamed and unleash that power in our life. Let's pray for opportunities this week. Let's pray for opportunities to be faithful with the gospel. God, would you bring some people into my life? And you know what's probably gonna happen is you're gonna realize just how many opportunities you have. And <laughs> Living the Christian life isn't so much about constantly going out to find people, but being faithful with the people that God actually brings to you. Pray for the opportunity. Look for the opportunity. And when it presents itself, seize that opportunity and be faithful with it. The passage we're actually going to be looking at this morning is going to present an attribute of God that some of you, some people in particular, but maybe even some of you won't like. Just thought I would kind of get that out in the open right now. The fact that God exhibits something called wrath. Wrath is God's fair and righteous anger. Now be careful, don't get confused when you hear that statement to, to take wrath, the wrath of God, and put it up next to what, like what human wrath is. Human wrath is, is faulty, it's full of pride, and, and you know, we, we, we easily get uh, offended by things, and, and we have a sense of, of a temper about us, that we, we don't know exactly how far to go and how, how not far to go. Our humanity is all through all of that, and so, you know, it's not perfect. But God has never had a moment that he's not perfect. God is perfectly loving and perfectly angry at the same time. Wrath is a portion of God's judgment. It's not the final judgment. It's not what happens at the end of our lives. Wrath is something that can happen even now. Now, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, let me give you some good news. Jesus' death actually satisfied the wrath of God. Romans 3, 25 tells us that, that he made propitiation for our sins by his shed blood. That's good news for us. The passage here will also present a side of us that God doesn't like. Doesn't like it when we ignore him any more than you don't like it when people ignore you. He doesn't like it when we suppress his truth. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And he ultimately doesn't like it when we worship anything other than him. Now, even though chapter one here in Romans is predominantly aimed at the Gentiles here, it is very, um, it's, it's not hard 
for believers in Jesus Christ to resolve or go back sort of to following the same pattern that they see in the world around them. And that's where you and I as believers need to be very careful and listen to what we're doing here. First three chapters of of Romans are very clear that God holds us accountable. Chapter one is predominantly about the Gentiles. Chapter two, uh, he holds the Jews accountable. And you get to chapter three, basically tells us he holds everybody accountable because everybody falls short of the glory of God. Which means you and I cannot ignore him. We cannot ignore his rules. We cannot suppress his truth. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter one. We're gonna look at verses 18 through 23. In fact, I'd ask you to follow along with me as I read this. Romans chapter one, starting in verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because he has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, the passage here, I believe, is gonna answer three questions. The first one starts off back in verse 18, the very first verse there, and that is that why does God exhibit wrath? Now go back, let me read 18 one more time. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Notice the first nine words there. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. You know, you would think, when you you take a word like wrath, you would think, well, that must be associated with hell, right? And yet the passage tells us it comes from heaven. Why? Well, it's because one of God's attributes is he's holy. The attribute-wise, God is gracious and he's merciful and he's loving, he's just, he's faithful, he's good, he's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. All of those attributes that you and I love so much. But one of his attributes is also is that he is holy. Because he's holy, he will judge unholiness. Verse 18 tells us that. It says, the wrath of God is revealed against ungodliness and unrighteousness. Now, by the way, notice here who it's not revealed against. It's not revealed against the godly or the righteous. We talked about that earlier, what God you know, did for us you know, by giving his son as, as a propitiation for our sins. It's not against the innocent. It's against the ungodly and the unrighteous. Now, inevitably, somebody will come up to me and ask the question, yeah, but what about that person that's on some deserted island out in the middle of nowhere? You know, is God gonna hold them responsible? Well, The answer is, if they are truly innocent, they have absolutely nothing to fear. The problem is, is that Romans chapter three says no one's innocent. 
That's because the passenger will tell us that the very same truth is laid out for them by God. Whether you're on a deserted island, in the middle of the jungle, in the middle of a big city, you know, it doesn't really matter at all. All of us have to respond to the revelation that God has given us. Verse 18 tells us that God's wrath comes because of the people who will suppress that truth. They won't do it. So what's that mean to suppress the truth? Suppressing the truth is, is picking and choosing what we like or we think is okay and ignoring the rest. It's a very common thing to do in the world. The, the world will look at the church and decide, hey, I like this about the church and I like this about the church. I like when they give all their money away. I like it when they feed the poor, but I don't like that when they talk about morality because I don't want anybody telling me I'm right or wrong. Incredibly common. I mean, it's like in every conversation. But it shouldn't be true of us as Christians. And yet at times it is. For example, let me give you an example how, how we might do this. Most, most of the time Christians would say, well, when it comes to forgiveness, I, I know that I'm supposed to forgive people. Just use this as an example. Because the Bible tells me that. Colossians chapter three, verse 13 says, as the Lord has forgiven you, you must also forgive. Jesus in Matthew chapter, chapter six, verse 15 says, if you do not forgive your trespasses, neither will your father forgive you. So what if you go, I'm not gonna do it? I don't want to. They hurt my feelings and I'm not going to forgive. As if there's some special set of rules just for you that you don't have to, you know, to, to do what God tells you to do. Verse 18 calls that the suppression of the truth. Now, I'm not talking about a one-time shot. I mean, you know, all of us make mistakes at times. All of us do something that, you know, well, I wish I would have done that differently and I'll probably go back to them and ask for forgiveness. I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done that. I'm talking about something that we do as a general lifestyle. Paul, in Romans chapter 12, verse two, told us that we're not to be conformed to the image of the world. What he's really talking about there is don't fall into the world's patterns. Don't take the same pattern as everybody else in life. Everybody in your class, everybody on your block, everybody at work. Now the second question that he answers here is in verses 19 and 20, and that is why are we without excuse? Look what he says in verse 19. He says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. So verse 19 is very clear here that the wrath of God comes ultimately because what can be known about God is plain, it's evident, and verse 20 says that his attributes are clearly perceived. In other words, God gives all people the knowledge of something greater than them that's there. People should be able to look and see that there's something there. Where did that something come from? You know, it's one thing to start with, you know, a mass, a big lump of stuff of matter, you know, like a company can do and say, well, I'm gonna take this wood and I'll turn it into this or I'll take this iron and I'll turn it into this, I'll make something. But God took nothing. He created ex nihilo out of absolutely nothing and created everything. And he created it with design and order. 
According to verse 19, the evidence of God's existence is plain. He has shown it to us. What Paul's talking about here is something that we tend to call general revelation. General revelation is where God reveals enough truth about himself in the universe to make his power and his presence and his intellect and design obvious to all, whether you, again, are in a third world country or whether you're you know, in the US. Now, what's really important to understand is this. That general revelation is not something that is, um, I'm gonna use a good theological word for you, it's not salvific. Every once in a while I just have to use a word like that to prove to you that I went to seminary. <laughs> okay, salvific means it won't lead to salvation. See, what, what, are you, what are you saying here? You're saying that God gives enough truth about him in the universe that I know that he's there, but just the knowledge of that truth is not enough to save me, no. It's enough to hold you responsible. But that knowledge right there is not enough to save you. See, that knowledge reveals that there is an all-powerful, all-knowing God and that he exists. In fact, keep your finger here in Romans and turn over to the left and go to Psalm chapter 19. Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is written by David. David was not only the second king of Israel, but he was also a prophet. Psalm 19 says this. Verse one, he says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies above proclaim his handiwork. Verse two, day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. In other words, I can look up and I can see all these stars, I can see all the things out there and I have to ask a really important question. Who made that? Where did that come from? How does it all fit together, work together? Why are we on the only planet that sustains life? This isn't a hard concept to get. Everything had to come from somewhere. I mean, matter doesn't suddenly create itself. Order and design don't spring up out of you know, disorder. Where did it come from? Where did the complexity come from? The truth is creation requires a designer to take all of the pieces and put them together exactly the right way. You know, if I took my, my watch apart, I'm fairly certain that I could probably break this down if I had the right tools or, or just even a big hammer. I could probably, you know, take it apart and get it down to at least 100 different pieces, you know, in, in this watch. But let's just say for a second I broke it down just into 10 pieces. Just 10 pieces. If I took those 10 pieces and I placed them in a little shoebox, and for the next million years, you know, you, you shake it and you keep it warm and protected and you water it a little bit and, and you do all those things, that watch is never going to come together and never work as it should have worked because it's a complexity issue. It requires a clockmaker. It's like an automobile. I mean, an automobile requires a, a mechanic and our planet, our, our, our earth, it required a, a planet maker. And us as people, as human beings, when you consider the fact of the DNA and the way God has put it together, our cell structure, or the central nervous system, our capacity to reason and to forgive and to communicate thought and feeling it, it speaks of design. Someone made me. 
What Romans 1 is telling us is that people should be able to look at the world and see the design, see the complexity, and come to the knowledge that someone is greater than them created all of this. Paul says that ability is within every human heart to know that, and it's the suppression of that truth, of that knowledge, that causes God to exhibit his anger. Tim Keller, who's one of my favorite authors, likened it to something called plagiarism. You know, most of us, when we think of plagiarism, we would define that as intellectual property theft. For example, if you were to write, you know, a a, a book, and and someone took that book, and they took the same chapters, and maybe slightly altered a word here or there, and, and, and they put it all out, and they printed it out, and they make a profit from it, that's plagiarism. Or let's say that you, know, you, you got your guitar out, you heard a song on the radio, and you really liked the melody and the chord, you know, things you got and the whole bit, and so you wrote your own little song with the exact same melody, and you put almost all the same words in there, and you put that out, that's plagiarism. Or if someone comes up with a thought or an idea or a concept and you take that thought or idea or concept without their permission and you make a profit on it, that's plagiarism. Plagiarism is more than just theft. It's not giving the glory and the honor to the one who wrote it or said it or thought it up. Plagiarism is claiming that you came up with the idea yourself. You're... you're, sufficient for only yourself. You don't need anybody else. You're not dependent on another. It's the refusal to give thanks to the one who birthed it by lying and saying you didn't need another's idea. What Paul is saying here in Romans chapter one is when we take what God has made and we live like we made it ourselves, that is plagiarism on an eternal scale. because we are not acknowledging God's power and God's ownership. That is suppressing the truth. Because all the honor and all the glory should go to God alone and it doesn't. And the result is, verse 20 says, they are without excuse, which basically means they are dispenseless on the judgment day. Now, let me answer a question here that would probably come up. What if they do acknowledge it? I mean, what if there's somebody that, again, is on one of those little islands out in the middle of nowhere, what if they do acknowledge, wow, I, I look and I see the stars up there and it, that cannot happen by itself. Where did it come from? The scriptures are, are incredibly clear here that God always provides. There's a story in, in Acts chapter eight about a, a member of the Ethiopian royal you know, cabinet, and in, in effect, he's the chief financial officer, he's the CFO uh, you know, of, of Ethiopia, and somewhere along the line, he picks up a, prophet, a, a, a copy of the prophet Isaiah, and, and somehow God moves him to, you know, to read this, and his heart starts beating, and God instantly provides a guy named Philip there to explain the gospel to him. Because God provides. Acts chapter 16, God gives, a, gives Paul a vision of a man in Macedonia crying out to know him, and so God sends Paul. Historically, if you know anything about church history, you'll know that, that one, of the, I mean, yeah, one of the apostles, Thomas, not the slager, but the apostle, okay, in this case, uh, God sends him to Asia. In fact, I even think that, I think he's sort of the apostle of, of India, if I remember right. 
Went there, shared the gospel, you know, started churches. Now, many of those churches, you know, died off because of repression and because, you know, the persecution that they went through, but the power of God sent people there to bring the gospel. Grant and Adrienne Walsh are missionaries in Thailand. Trust me, if you talk to Grant, they never had a desire to go to Southeast Asia, but then they surrendered their lives to Christ and they made themselves available to go where God wanted them to go and God sent them to India. And then after he came home in their last visit and were here, then God sent them to Thailand. You may have noticed during our, our prayer request that it, it popped up there some people that are in Afghanistan. You know what that's about? That's about our sister church down in Yuma who about three couples from their church heard God speaking to them saying, I want you to go and take the gospel to Afghanistan. And so those couples have gone and they're involved in church planting and sharing the gospel. And you know what? They're still there. They need your prayer. They need our protection. And God wants the gospel to go out. He provides people. He moves in people's hearts to go and do that. Now the third question here is what comes from not honoring God? Look at verses 21 through 23. It says, for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What you get here is you get five results here of not honoring God between verses 18 and 23. The first one, of course, comes to verse 18, and that is the wrath of God, God's fair and righteous anger. The second, though, we've already dealt with that one. The second one, though, comes from verse 21, and that is the, they become futile in their thinking. In other words, they have faulty lang- or logic. Futile means it doesn't work. It's full of silly speculations. You know, so many people today outside of the church will say things like, well, you know, you Christians just need to learn to be rational. And what they mean by that is you just need to get rid of the, the divine, the miraculous, the supernatural, and start living just good, solid, wholesome lives. And yet the Bible calls for man's reason to be subject to his revelation. You say, what does that mean? That means God's miraculous intervention into humanity changed everything. When God let his son take on human flesh to be born in a major, to come, to live among us, to provide a life and a model for us and then to go to a cross and die for us and then come out of the grave, that changed everything. Everything. As a Christian, I believe God makes the calls in life, not me. The third result of not honoring God is that their motives are wrong. Verse 21 says that they have fool, their foolish hearts are darkened. To say someone has a, a dark heart is to say that their motives are bad. Motive-wise, you're talking about a group of people, according to the passage here, that are not going to honor God. They won't submit to God. They won't obey another one's rules. 
Please, Lord, do not let that be us. The fourth result of of not honoring God is delusional thinking. Verse 22 says they claimed to be wise, but they became fools. Delusional means that they're telling themselves what simply isn't true. Like, God's not gonna judge my choices morally. You're lying to yourself. Now, why would somebody do that? Well, probably because the thought that you and I would have to go and to go onto our knees before the Lord and admit that we were wrong and call his son our savior and our Lord. Doesn't Philippians 2 says that every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord? Some people don't want to do that. Some people don't want to change their lifestyle. Some people don't want to face the fact that they are just simply sinners. Verse 22 tells us that they claim at this point to think they are wise, but the truth is they're fools. Now why would seeing God wrong and denying him for who the scriptures say make us a fool? Because we know according to verse 19 that he's there, he's shown it to him, it is plain. It is plain that he is above all, that he's created all, he sustains all, and ultimately he will judge all, and we know it in our hearts that it's true. So for someone to think, well, I don't have to answer to anybody, that's foolish. There's a fifth result of not honoring God, and that is worthless worship. Verse 23 tells us they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now what I want you to see here out of this is really important here. Verse 23 tells us that worship still actually takes place. Everybody in the world is, is, is doing this. They don't stop worshiping. They simply exchange the worship. Instead of God getting the glory Some other thing does because we are created to become worshipers. The problem is when I worship anything other than the God of the heavens, I become an idol worshiper. I actually take the first two of the Ten Commandments and I'm guilty of those things. I'll have have a God before our God and I'll make a graven image. Wrong thinking, according to verse 23, leads me away from worshiping the Creator to worshiping the creation. You see how this could happen, how we fail to honor God, people's thoughts and feelings and emotions, they're all wrong. You know, normally when we think of idolatry, we think of two things. And one, of the, one would be classic idolatry. That would be is that maybe you take a piece of wood and you know, you've got a really sharp knife and you begin to carve it and you carve out something or other and you, you, that you use that to sort of you be your deity. Children of Israel did, right? They took gold and they made a cow, a golden calf. That became their deity. Then there's metaphorical, you know, uh, idolatry too. Like the idol is wealth, position, fame, money, things. But there's a third description of idolatry which we don't think about a lot 
But I think the passage here in Romans 1 sort of leads us down that way, which is way more dangerous spiritually, and that is idolatry that comes from suppressing the truth. See, what, what, are, you, what are you saying? It's idolatry that refuses to accept the revealed God for who he is. And so instead, what I do is, I don't really like the revealed God for who he is. So what I do is I begin to fashion and shape God the way I want him to be. I call this God shaping. I mean, think about what an artist does. An artist will go and take something and they'll begin to you know, cut and shape little places too so it's just exactly the way they want it. You know, of course they'll stand back and maybe they have other people that will look at it and try to see the beauty of the way they want certain things. That may be fine for art but that's not who we're supposed to be with God. God shaping is creating an image of God that we're most comfortable with. But it may not be the image of God as it's revealed here that caused you know, the wrath of God to come. Let me give you an example of how God shaping might look. You might say, well I believe God is loving and would never judge anyone. I'm here to tell you that's the suppression of the truth. You are God-shaping. You want to know why? Because the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation chapter 20 and Revelation chapter 21, both talk about the fact that one day we will stand before God and give an account. So for me to hold that position is just basically saying, I don't care, I don't like it. I'm God-shaping. What about if I come along and I say, well, I believe God is accepting of all religions equally. He lets them all in because they've all made an effort. God shaping. You're suppressing the truth. I mean, think about Jesus' own words in John 14, chapter six. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You may not like that, But God shaping, it's idolatry. Or I could never believe in a God who would send someone to eternal punishment. That is God shaping, it's idolatry. It's common in the world today. But the scary part is, it's potentially common even in a believer's life. You know, I'm gonna ask the worship team if they'll come back and join me. While they're doing that, um, Thomas Jefferson was a brilliant politician, primary author of the Declaration of Independence, but he clearly was not perfect or sinless. Um, some people believe he was a follower of Christ. I don't believe he was. He was claimed to be a theist. A theist means I believe that someone higher than me created everything. That's what a theist is. That doesn't mean that he was a Christ follower. 
As he got older, one of the things that Jefferson did was he took his Bible and he actually cut out all references to prayer and all references to anything that was miraculous and uh, that, that Jesus did or virgin birth or anything like that, cut it all out of his Bible. In fact, would you show that picture of the Jefferson Bible? You can see here where he's cut things out and they've been removed. You can buy a copy of the Jefferson Bible. What the Jefferson Bible is all about is you living a life that is morally sound. A lot of people have come to his defense and they're saying, you know, all Jefferson was trying to do was simplify the Bible into a list of do's and don'ts so that he could give it to the Native Americans that were there and they would know how they should live their life. That they would follow this model of Jesus being sort of the teacher of morality. The problem is, it's the same problem that the pastors in that day had as that the pastors of today even have is that would never lead anybody to salvation. Morality without Christ is simply a list of do's and don'ts. It wasn't sufficient. That's not how the Bible says that we're saved, by simply doing the right thing. I mean, if all of us did the right thing, you know, if we were all at peace and educated, God's heart would still be broken because we're sinners and lost. The Bible tells us that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Jesus alone. That God is the creator of all things, the sustainer of all things. He is the Lord, he is the savior, he is the king. He rules the universe, and at the same time, he is also personal in the fact that God would send his son to the earth and give us his scriptures so that we might know him. Anything less than seeing him and recognize him and worshiping him for who he is, is God-shaping, and it reveals idolatry. Because I'm making God into who I want him to be, not who he actually is. Listen, we all worship something. We were created to worship. The question is, is your worship true, or have you exchanged the truth of God for something that makes you feel more comfortable? Would you pray with me? It's very possible that when you look at your life, maybe you never even meant to do it, but that you have been guilty of God shaping. You have so longed and to have God just love everybody and let everything sort of slide and pass that you have let everything in, I, I wanna encourage you, stop. Repent. Tell the, the creator, the sustainer, the ruler of all things that you'll love him and follow him only. Father, I pray that you would move in a very powerful way in our hearts. Help us to trust in you. Help us to turn anything that's um, short of your glory, anything that has caused us to, to worship our own thoughts and ideas. Help us to turn away from those things.
and to trust in you, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Folks, Romans 1 tells us that you and I were created to worship. Here's my encouragement to you. Don't exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship anything other than our creator. Don't let it happen because the world around you is doing it. Don't let it happen because it sounds like it's so open-minded. You worship God. God bless you. Have a great week. I love you.